America! For those of you that missed yesterday's show, I'm your thrill sergeant, Uncle Jimmy. Uncle Jim for short. The time is now 1800 hours, and I will meet each and every one of you here daily at this time. No exceptions given. Now, here are a few logs that Uncle Jimmy wants to throw on the fire. Now, I'm not sure what's sadder. Joe Biden shorting himself in front of the royal family. Now they joking him, calling him Joe. I can't control my bowels when I'm with you, Biden. Or the artist, formerly known as President Obama, telling a group of kids at the climate summit to stay angry, stay frustrated. Hell, I'm sorry. I thought we was trying to work towards some harmony. That's a far cry from your campaign slogan a few years ago of hope and change. Also, Snotty Pippin went on the Michael Strahan show to talk about his new book entitled, I Should Have Been Michael Jordan's Number One Side Piece. His complaint was he and Jordan didn't do anything but play ball on the court. They didn't do anything off the court. Michael Jordan just tweeted out and responded to these allegations by saying, I told him to buy a dog. Now, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is going after Aaron Rodgers. Message to all of you NFL players. Y'all all a bunch of punks if y'all don't stand up and help Aaron Rodgers. Here all of y'all, y'all stood up at the beginning of the season and you defended Carl Nasap, but now you quiet as a church mouse pissing on cotton when it comes time to, feed, to, to defend the league's MVP. Hey, also speaking of tweeting, I got one more thing for you. The makers of Sesame Street just tweeted out that Big Bird just got his vaccine shot. What the hell's next? Miss Piggy gonna lead the state of Texas to get on an abortion? Just cause she found out that Kermit wasn't the baby daddy? We all know that the Count was really the baby's daddy. Y'all remember the Count? Talking about one, two, three fat pig. Oh, 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 that's a good fat pig. Now, it's time for Fearless, featuring Jason Whitlock. Today's rundown is gonna be something like this. Y'all know the big guy. He's, not, he's got another great fire starter for you. And then we're going to head out to our professor of intel, Professor Delano Squires. He's going to be here to break down, and he's going to tell us how President Biden, and I just told you about Obama, maybe they're the real white supremacists in this thing, man. And new fearless soldier, Rashad McCants, he's back to talk about the NBA. And then we're going to head to our overseas affiliate, Steve Kim. He's back to give his comments on Justin Fields. And by the way, I got a memo to all of you members of the media. Y'all need to stop speaking bad about our black quarterbacks, no matter how bad they playing. By the way, hit that thing song for me. Could you do it for me? Big Wheezy, let's do this, bro. What's happening? Mm.
Uncle Jimmy, the little logs he threw on the fire. Good job. Happy Tuesday to all of you. Uh, Uncle Jimmy's got me warmed up and ready to go straight to my fire starter. So let's get to it. On August 25th, 2020, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed two white people and injured a third. Uh, the shootings occurred during the mostly peaceful arson, looting, rioting, and violence stage to protest the police-involved shooting of Jacob Blake, an unarmed but knife-wielding black sexual assaulter who peacefully fought with police officers as they tried to arrest him. In the days following the shooting of Blake, Antifa and other white liberal agitators descended on Kenosha to assist in the mostly peaceful destruction of the city. Rittenhouse, then just 17 years old, joined other law and order conservative volunteers in descending on Kenosha to thwart the plans to burn the city to the ground. In the streets of Kenosha, Black Lives Matter hosted a fight between white outside agitators and do-gooders. BLM played the role of legendary boxing promoter Don King pitting Tyson Fury versus Rocky Marciano. Rittenhouse won the fight via the three knockdown rule. His first opponent tried to wrestle his gun away. Rittenhouse shot him four times and killed him. His second opponent clubbed him with a skateboard and tried to wrestle his gun away. Rittenhouse shot him once and killed him. His third and final opponent approached him with a gun and pointed it at Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse shot him once and severed a bicep. A prosecutor in Wisconsin has charged Rittenhouse with a laundry list of crimes, including murder. Rittenhouse and his attorneys have claimed self-defense. The trial is in its second week. By all objective accounts, it's not going well for the prosecution. Rittenhouse's third and surviving victim admitted on the witness stand that he pointed his gun at Rittenhouse before he was shot. Based on images from inside the courtroom, the admission visibly devastated the prosecution team. But there is a somewhat surprising twist to this court case. The Rittenhouse murder trial is somehow a referendum on racial justice. It appears that white liberals who die in a dispute with a white conservative are posthumously granted black status. Rittenhouse killed two white people and injured a third, and he's being portrayed as a white supremacist. A segment of the black population that lives on Facebook and other social media apps are treating the Rittenhouse trial as an extension of the George Floyd Derek Chauvin trial. The conviction of Rittenhouse seems to be as important as the acquittal of O.J. Simpson. A black man purporting to be George Floyd's nephew posted a video to Facebook claiming that there are people inside the Kenosha courthouse identifying and photographing members of the jury. Let's hear from Cortez Rice. 
I ain't even gonna name the people that I know that's up in the, in the Kenosha. I mean, in the Kenosha trial. But there's cameras in there. Yep. It's definitely cameras up in there, and there's definitely right. people taking pictures of the juries and everything like that. We know what's going on. So we need the same results, man. We need the same results. Justice for Dante Rice. Justice for Austin. Rice's video feels like a threat. Jurors will be doxxed and harassed if they don't convict Rittenhouse of murder. We've reached a level of absurdity where black Twitter cares more about white on white crime than black on black crime. With the death of his alleged uncle, Cortez Rice launched a career as a Black Lives Matter activist. Rice was so moved by the death of his uncle that he abandoned his plans of medical school, bought gold fronts, started a GoFundMe page, and reimagined himself as Al Sharpton 2.0. Black Lives Matter claims to be about protecting the sanctity of black lives. In reality, the movement is really white perpetrators matter. There apparently is such a shortage of white perpetrators committing violence against black people that BLM has adopted cases that have nothing to do with black victims. Kyle Rittenhouse shot three white people who attempted to disarm and attack him. I can't for the life of me understand why any black person would have their emotions tied up in this case. There's only one possible explanation. If you see the three white victims as your saviors, then I understand your passion for retribution. I use the word retribution intentionally. The Rittenhouse case isn't about justice. Black boys and men are gunned down daily without a concerted effort to demand justice and or conviction for the perpetrators. We have no problem, none whatsoever, overlooking unsolved murders or unjust acquittals when the perpetrators are black. Oh, he cheered. O.J. Simpson's acquittal. Are we gonna cry and riot when, if, Rittenhouse is acquitted? If so, we will further frame ourselves as racially insane. We've allowed cable news, social media apps, and the leftist politicians to use race-bait narratives to wrap us in a constant state of racial delusion. We think race explains every human interaction. Our actions, values, culture, self-esteem, and faith are all irrelevant. Race Anon explains America. We've joined a conspiracy theory cult that has convinced us a gun battle between white men in 2020 is really a Civil War reenactment. That's my fire. I brought in another fire starter to help me with this conversation. Delano has published uh, two columns today that kind of, they don't explore Rittenhouse, but they just explore race and how uh, accusations of racism are being used by uh, the Democratic Party and leftists to control the minds of black people. And I think this whole Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse case is just another example of what Delano has written about in two columns today. And so we're gonna roll out to Washington, D.C., 
bring in the smartest man on the show, Professor Delano Squires. He's not a professor, but we call him a professor. Um, <laughs> he's actually a dad and a husband, and he's got some other job that we don't talk about. But uh, he is the smartest man on the show. And so, uh, Delano, I'm trying to figure out why the Cal Rittenhouse case is so important to black people. Do you have a theory? I think part of it is uh, the connection between that case and Jacob Blake and, you know, the protests that turned into riots uh, in that time period. Um, I think part of it is the notion that those protests were in response to the abuse that um, Jacob Blake suffered at the hands of police so that Kyle Rittenhouse is seen as an opponent of the people who are protesting that abuse. And, and I think you covered that nicely in your, in your monologue. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like you, for the life of me, I don't understand how Kyle Rittenhouse turned into a white supremacist when all three of his victims were white guys, one of whom, by the way, was a registered sex offender. So um, for people who, who saw the video, it's extremely clear that the, the last two uh, people who he shot, um, he was acting in self-defense because one of them, as you said, tried to hit him with a skateboard and the other one actually pulled a gun on him. So yeah, I, it's, this one is strange to me. I think he is a, a, a white male. I don't know if he's straight or if he's Christian, but if he is, then obviously he checks all four boxes that the left hates. And I think they see him as epitomizing the separate and unequal justice system that white people benefit from because of their privilege that black people do not have access to. And I think um, if I go back to last year, that, that was a big part of the way the story was reported. It was that Kyle Rittenhouse was allowed to shoot three people and then walk up to police with his hands up without them firing a single shot. And, and the media would often juxtapose um, his uh, you know, interaction with police to that of, let's say, Philando Castile or other people, uh, you know, black folks who were shot and killed by police while unarmed but not being a threat. So I think it, it, it just sort of revolves around the notion that at least on the left, they believe that we have two separate uh, justice systems and Kyle Rittenhouse is really benefiting from his white privilege. Does the conviction of Kyle Rittenhouse, how does that advance the cause of black people? I guess it could be a signal to, to white people when we protest don't you do anything to stop it? Don't mm. when we riot and loot, uh, don't try to stop it, particularly if you're white. Uh, I, I, I guess that would be some sort of advancement, but uh, in some people's minds. But I, I just I, I can't, and and I get that it's connected to Jacob Blake. But again, one of the guys Kyle Rittenhouse killed was a sexual pedophile, registered sex offender. Jacob Blake was, had a warrant for sexual assault of a black woman, was outside this woman's house, was mm. clearly what, I, I just, the media's control of our mind or social media's control of our mind and the way race is being used to weaponize us and control our emotions is just, it's mind-blowing how effective it is. 
it really is. And I don't know if people really understand the degree to which that control has sort of extended its tentacles into all aspects of our society and culture. So for instance, Jason, I'll give an example. Um, there's a, a website that I, I used to read periodically called the Gospel Coalition, and it's it's created by evangelical Christians. They they talk about uh, matters of you know race and culture, but primarily faith, right? So it's a it's a website for um, for Christians, Protestants. One writer last year compared Kyle Rittenhouse and Dylan Roof, and he said they were, and I'm paraphrasing, they were both you know, white domestic terrorist shooters or something to that effect. Now, I don't know if he had seen the video, which shows, again, at least clearly the, la- the last two shots that he fired were, were in self-defense. But this is not just, you know, uh, the, the, the control that we're talking about is not just among black leftists and academics and people who spend all their time on, on Twitter. I mean, this stuff has really gone far and penetrated deep into our culture to the point where people who profess to believe the Bible and profess to believe in justice um, are willing to jump to conclusions, uh, to make baseless assertions, to apply um, what the Bible would would describe as partiality as it relates to, to the execution of justice, all because it fits a particular racial narrative that, that they want to advance. So I, I love that part in your mono where you said we're to the point now where black Twitter cares more about white on white crime than it does black on black crime. And I think that's exactly where we are right now. And I mean, it, it feels like every day that that goes by, the, the, the spiral is just getting you know, deeper and deeper and we're just headed downwards at, a, at you know, greater and greater rates of speed. But I hope at some point we can pull the nose up because as you said, this, this stuff is getting, is getting really crazy. We've moved to a place, Delano, where anything that is in the news cycle, and if it involves a black person, our initial thought is, how can we compare this to a white person? And, mm. and, and it, that, that's our default setting is, okay, something happened, O.J. Simpson happened, how does, okay, Robert Blake, he was an actor and he developed, right. and so everything is, is I had someone who I respect uh, ask me yesterday about Aaron Rodgers and, and Kyrie Irving and the way are they being treated in disparate fashions. And, and it's like the whole society has been rigged to mm. evaluate everything through a racial lens and almost nothing through a faith or religious lens. And, yeah. and how did we, as, as black people that we used to be, I don't know, I, don't, I, think, it, I think I'm gonna have to use past tense, we used mm. to be seen as the most religious people in America, I'm just not sure if that's the case anymore. I mean, Jason, you, you hit the nail right on the head, right? I, I describe it as um, our culture refuses to take off its uh, infrared lenses and race band sunglasses because everything we see, to your point, we filter through the, the, the prism of race. 
Um, and th- there are times to ask those questions, right? Well, how would this have played out if the actors were different colors, right? I, I think at times that, that question is, is appropriate. Um, increasingly, though, the, the question is often, well, how would this play out if the, the quote-unquote perpetrator, depending on the situation, you know, was a white person. So I immediately think of, you know, the situation with Deshaun Watson having been accused of sexual misconduct, sexual assault by, last time I checked, 20-plus women, and that being basically a non-story aside from the basic facts of the case on ESPN and sports networks. Um, if this was Josh Allen or Baker Mayfield, my sense is that the coverage would be a little bit different and you would start hearing terms about privilege, you know, thrown around. But I, but I think part of it is, you know, as you said, we, we see everything through race and there are very few people or outlets who have the ability to sort of pull back and take a wider view of what's going on. And, and one of the things that I, I know I do when I, when I write is I try to be what I would describe as a HSL instructor, right? So I'm sure you've heard of ESL, English as a Second Language. So it's, it's kids who may come from homes where English is not their first language. The school will work with them in the language that they do know in hopes of getting them to the language that they need to know. So for me, HSL means, yes, I, I can speak the language of race. Yes, I can analyze certain things you know, from, from a racial perspective. But the goal is to always get us back to the H, which is the place of humanity, so that we can see the things that bond us as a people, so that we can see the things that are common to us as a people. And I think just you know, the most recent um, uh, instance of that is the way in which Colin Kaepernick compared the NFL Combine to slavery in his you know, six-part uh, docu-comedy drama that, that, he, that he rolled out with Ava DuVernay. And not only did he start the series on that note, but he didn't just say it has remnants of slavery. He showed people, the athletes, walking from the present, right, in, in, their, in their uniforms back into the past with their arms chained and, and, and all white men bidding on them and saying, oh, who, who wants this boy? And the first thing that came to mind was, one, the combine's been a long, around for a long time. Two, white players go through the combine. I mean, a lot of people have seen the pictures of Tom Brady with his shirt off and his, and his flabby belly. So, so it's not to say that you know, white players are exempt from this. But the third and most important part is the white players that constitute the vast majority of the National Hockey League go through the same exact exercises, the same measurements, the same weigh-ins, the same agility drills. But no one ever thinks to look there to see whether the issue that we're talking about is one of race or one of common humanity. And that's the part we're wearing infrared goggles all day. You, you, can, you can only see in those you know, green and, and, and red colors. And, and when you see a white person, you think that you can see into their heart. You can see that, that red heat of racism emanating from their heart. And it just leaves people and us as a society and culture totally blind. I'm going to tell you what baffles me about the whole slavery analogy is is like and and Kaepernick is so simplistic and unsophisticated. Mm -hmm. I I get it that, you know, he's got a childlike understanding of the world. And so that analogy makes sense to him. But there are those of us in the media 
who are supposed to be arbiters of truth and, and trying to explain the bigger picture to the public so that we don't just lurch into these unsophisticated, ignorant racial mm -hmm. tropes and narratives. And so I would just like to ask Kaepernick, his supporters, anybody in the media, like the NFL is the strongest force in popular culture. It's the biggest platform we have to offer in American mm. culture, the Super Bowl. And just again, it's the number one TV show on ESPN, uh, NBC, ABC, Fox and CBS, the NFL Network. Again, it's the dominant cultural force. And do they really think that like when the NFL started 100 years ago, that people were like, you know what? And we're going to make it a showcase of black millionaires and black talent. Mm. And mm. so we're going to put Ray Lewis and Lamar Jackson mm -hmm. and all Patrick Mahomes and 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 Deshaun Watson and all these Jalen Ramsey to Richard Sherman. We're going to make them the showcase and the number one stars of the culture. And I get, I know Tom Brady and Peyton Manning are a part of it as well, but it's a league right. that's 75% black. And it's the, they have the biggest platform and biggest stage in America. I just don't think if, if I'm a racist, I don't come up, I'm gonna create a league that's gonna be dominated by black people, make them millionaires, and somehow this is akin to slavery. It's, the NFL yeah. is the exact opposite of that. I've argued it a million times. It's created more black millionaires than hmm. any other industry in America. And I don't know, what about the NBA? The NBA has 15 guys on a team. This is 53. Right. And, and 20 of them are making seven figures or more on each team, or if, if not more than 20 of them. And so I, it's, I wanna move to your column uh, <laughs> today. Uh, if Democrats peeked under the hood of white supremacy, they'd find a mirror, Joe Biden and Barack Obama. Uh, mm. The first paragraph of your uh, column, Democrats have accused white conservatives of being racist for decades, but now they have identified an even more dangerous group of advocates for white supremacy, black people. Uh, mm. <laughs> explain your column today. You, you went through a lot of great points and analogies in this column. Please explain. Sure. So for me, you know, seeing the coverage of the, the election last week, all right, and particularly with the, the election of Winston Sears to, you know, the post of lieutenant uh, governor in Virginia, the, the first black person and woman to hold that post in Virginia's history, and seeing her called basically a, a black mouthpiece for white supremacy by the likes of Michael Eric Dyson and Joy Reid, it, it really opened my eyes even more to what's going on here. And Jason, you know, we heard this earlier this year with um, the LA Times said that Larry Elder's the white face of, the black face of white supremacy. Condoleezza Rice a few weeks ago was accused of carrying water or supporting white supremacy, given her comments about CRT and race and, and education. And, and it seems like the, the left is doubling down on this message. The message is failing clearly because voters uh, voted for a guy who no one had heard of a year ago over um, a Democratic candidate who was governor, you know, 
not too long ago in Virginia's past. But the, the notion that um, a black woman like Winsome Sears, who, you know, if you hear her, her sort of testimony, her life story, you saw her up there with, with her black husband and, and their two black daughters and hear that she was a Marine and her father immigrated from Jamaica, is inspiring to most people. And all the left can come away from that, come away with from that is she's basically just a mouthpiece and a puppet for, for white supremacists. And I thought it was important to really shed light on what a white supremacist agenda would look like. So my, my goal was to just lay out where both left and right, Democrats and Republicans, um, liberals, liberals and so-called progressives versus conservatives, where they stand on a number of issues. So on family, um, on abortion, on education, on crime, on culture, to describe where each stands and then ask at the end, now what would a grand wizard prefer? And we're at the point now where our, our media class, the cultural overlords, and, and, and most cynically, the, the talented 10th, the, the aphristocracy, as, I, uh, as I'm gonna start calling them, right? The black folks who claim to speak for other black people. These are, are the people who go out and, and accuse someone like Winsome Sears or Larry Elder or Condoleezza Rice or before that Colin Powell or Clarence Thomas or me or you as being puppets for white supremacy when all we say is we are for marriage, the nuclear family, a loving environment for children. We're against abortion because we would like to see more children born and specifically more black children born. We want high standards in education Right? We, we don't want race essentialism and gender ideology in the classroom. We want black folks to be able to live in, in safe communities. And when we see that black people are victimized by homicide at a rate seven times higher than white people, our response is not, well, they should have even fewer police in the neighborhood. Right? We're, we're not like Cori Bush, who wants to defund the police for her, for her constituents in St. Louis her black constituents who make up 90% of the, the homicide victims in St. Louis, while she pays police $70,000 over the course of two months to service her private security. Because her life matters, but not the lives of her black constituents, right? When we see toxic and degrading and self-destructive culture, whether in hip hop or other, you know, sort of mainstream organs of culture, our response is not, yes, let's promote uh, more debauchery. Let's promote sex work and pimping and stripping and porn. Let's promote all of those things to, to, to Americans and particularly to the black community through people that we think they will identify with because they look the same, right? That's not what conservatives say at all. So we're not for promoting things in other people's houses that we wouldn't accept in our own houses. But somehow a, a black man, I'll speak for myself, who says, I'm responsible for my family I'm dedicated and I love my wife and I love my children. I want them to, to have high standards in their classroom, right? I don't accept nonsense culture because I don't push it on my kids. So don't expect me to co-sign Cardi B or Megan Stallion or anybody else. I want my family to live in a safe neighborhood. I think more black children should be born. I'm tarred as a, as a, as a white supremacist or someone who is supporting white supremacy. So. I, I would love to have a sit down conversation with Joy Reid or Michael Eric Dyson or anybody else who thinks that this thing is gonna fly because they're taking us into clown world and 
I don't think anyone, and particularly not black folks, none of us should join this circus. One of the things that even for, and, and my expectations for Joy Reid and MSNBC aren't high, but you know, Winsome Sears, for her to go on national TV and say, hey, I'd like to engage with, debate Joy Reid on these issues. Mm -hmm. And so this is a historic first black woman elected statewide in the state of Virginia. She's got what seems to be a bright political future, has an amazing story, has a black husband, black kids, celebrates her father. The response, I, I literally thought for a brief moment, like, oh, wow, Joy Reid's obviously going to ask this woman to come on her show and they're going to have a discussion. But the response was to bring Eric Dyson on and assassinate yeah. this woman's character. And I'm just sitting there like, wow, really? This is, we can't engage even though, let's say they politically disagree, they should be able, just as women, as black people who allegedly say they care about, should be able to have some sort of discussion, and it shouldn't be, well, let me go bring Eric Dyson in so he can rap and rhyme and, and, and assassinate this woman's character. But, but the other thing, Delano, I wanna say, the biggest crime that you and I and others commit that we're convicted of, this is what it basically mm. comes down to. It's a debate about who is responsible for the welfare of black people. Is mm -hmm. it us? Is it me and Delano? Or is it them? Mm. Rachel Maddow, Joe Biden, uh, the 80% the of Kamala Harris that's white, uh, the 50% of Barack Obama that's white, are they responsible or are we responsible for ourselves? That's what this whole thing comes down to is I believe, based off what I saw from my mother and father, mm -hmm. that I can take care of myself and I can take care of whatever I create. Based off what I see from my brother and my sister, we're more than capable of taking, and again, I'm t I graduated college with a 2.3. My mm. father didn't graduate high school. My mother was a factory worker. I come from basically nothing. My, my brother wasn't brilliant. We, he had tutors all through high school, and he was smarter than me, but he had tutors. He wanted to go to engineering school and all this other stuff. He was no rocket scientist and genius. Uh, he joins the Air Force. The guys put together a beautiful family, taking care of, you know, lives the, the huxtable life that mm -hmm. we all used to dream about. I just, we're all capable of that. We're not some kind of special aberration. Right. Uh, and, and so that, that is our crime. It's like the other side, Michael Eric Dice and Joy Reid and them, are, you know, white people are responsible. What they do matters 10 times more than what we do. And I just reject that. And, and it's the, the crazy thing, particularly going back to Virginia, right? We're, we're talking about a state where the current governor doesn't know whether a picture from his medical school yearbook in which two men are present, one in blackface and the other in a Klan robe, he's not sure which guy he is. And these are the people that want to lecture us on conservatives being racist. So yeah, you, you're, you're exactly right. We went from Barack Obama saying, yes, we can, 
to the aristocracy saying, no, we cannot. And even according to their logic, they say that, that white people have oppressed black folks for 400 years. And when black people, particularly black men, stand up and say, look guys, it's 2021, we need to get busy. We, we, can, we can do our own thing, we can manage our own families, we can manage our own affairs, we have moral reasoning, we have mental capacity, we can do anything that anyone else can do. Their response is, sit down and shut up. We're waiting on white folk to save us. So, and that's why they seem so, so confused and always so upset. Because on one hand, you say, this person is oppressing me, and on the other hand, you're saying, I'm waiting for them to liberate me. That doesn't even make sense according to their logic. But, but really what's going on here, and, and, I, and I touched on this in, in, in another piece, is the, the country, and particularly the black community, is suffering from what I call Selma syndrome, which is a combination of the features of Stockholm syndrome and America's ugly racial history. And that history is real. And that's why the syndrome is so powerful, because Democrats know they can invoke racism, white supremacy at any time as a tool of emotional manipulation and social control. And, and just like in Stockholm Syndrome, what, what happens after a period of time is the person or group that's been held captive starts to uh, have uh, a particular connection and bond to the person that's holding them. And, that re- and they uh, become bonded to them in, in such a way that they see their sort of existence as connected to their, their captor. And that's how you have people who you know, can be totally disrespected by the Democratic Party, no uh, desire to fulfill any part of the quote unquote black agenda, and then turn around and declare how loyal we are. Oh, we, we vote for the Democrats 90%. White women are the problem because half of them vote for Republicans and half vote for Democrats. Like, that doesn't make any sense. The party is not even trying to address our concerns. They know they can throw out reparations during the primaries, and they know, you know, there'll be a Pavlovian response where, you know, people on The Breakfast Club and CNN and MSNBC and all the other networks start to say, wow, look, maybe maybe black folk will get reparations. You fast forward a year, and the administration is talking about giving reparations to people who entered the country illegally because they were separated from their children. <laughs> They have no intention, right? And, and people like you and I, we can see this, but the, the Selma syndrome has such a grip, right? It, it has such a grip on our, on our collective psyche that it has, uh, it has black folk, particularly on the black left, fighting against black people who say, no, we can take responsibility for our own lives. And, and I think that's part of the reason, and, and let me be clear, Jason, on something. I'm not saying every black Democrat suffers from the Selma syndrome. I'm saying that people who uh, associate black racial identity with supporting democratic politics and policy suffer from the Selma syndrome. I'm saying that people who can't, who automatically say that anyone who is not a Democrat is endorsing white supremacy, they suffer from it. And Democrats know that, which is why they have no intention on fulfilling any promise that they make to us, because they know that from their perspective, we have nowhere else to go. And that's why they treat black people, whether men or women, but particularly men who say, I'm out of here. This is not serving me. I don't need y'all. The, 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 the government is, is not my dad. Um, we're not in a, in a three-way with, you know, Uncle Sam is not in a three-way with me and my wife. 
So I don't need you guys. I can live my own life. I can buy a house. I don't I don't constantly have to, to look to the government to, to give me things that everybody else acquires on their own. So when black men say that, you see how viciously they react towards us because their goal is to keep us forever and always dependent on them. And a vote for them is always a vote to give the left more power. Whereas on the flip side, people who believe in, in limited government, right, a vote for a conservative is generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, a vote to give the citizen and individual more power. So no, you decide what's the best choice for your, for your kid as it relates to education. No, you are responsible for your children, for their welfare and their, and their well-being. But somehow on the left and particularly in, in the black community, um, you know, the, the, the government as an entity, we used to keep it down in the basement. We used to call him Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam is here to stay. He's staying for a little bit. He comes up every once in a while, you know, get something to eat. He really stay out of the way. But Uncle Sam is slid into the master bedroom while, while dad was away. And now he has a different relationship with the family. And now he says, no, I got you guys. Don't, look, dad, he's not coming back. I, I made sure of that. I'm the daddy now. I'll take care of you. And too many black folk, men and women, have accepted that reality. Uh, I'm going to let you go. Uh, but I do want to just say your, your point about, uh, you know, they talk about reparations during the election cycle. And I just it, it just ran through my mind. I started thinking about Ice Cube and how he was trying to cut a deal with Trump, the platinum plan, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he got eviscerated. And Joe Biden and them said, well, we'll meet with you after the election. They, <laughs> they never met with him. Right, right. And never met with him. And the next thing, again, the point you just made about, look, they dangled reparations in front of us. And then the next thing you hear is like, now these illegal immigrants, we're going to cut them a half million dollar check a piece. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. A <laughs> That's the and we go for it. it it's it's mind-blowing. Thank you, Delano. Uh, Thank great you, stuff. All right, go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Did Delano just crush it there? Just kill it there? Hit them damn likes. Hit the notifications. Leave me a comment in the comment section. I'm going to try to respond tonight. You're doing a great job. Let's continue to build this fearless army. I need you, you soldiers, to go out and get me more recruits to join this fearless army. We're going to change this conversation and this country because we're going to continue to give people a platform that uh, have the courage to speak the truth. Rashad McCants. These words are our original regrets and our decisions. We don't want to go to heaven with freedom. It's my obligation to hate discrimination. Raising up your hands for freedom. All right, welcome back. Time to switch gears. Change up, talk a little sports, talk a little NBA basketball uh, with Rashad McCants, who I'm now about to uh, label our most controversial uh, soldier. Man, Rashad, get on in here. We're going to roll out to Las Vegas and bring Rashad in here. Man, am I taking heat Ooh, over yeah. Rashad McCants. 
uh, I, I'm wow. People over social media, uh, mm -hmm. they got some strong feelings about Rashad McCants. People in North Carolina, uh, not fond of you. I, I I'm gonna. I, I don't want to plead ignorance because th that would be kind of lame. But I walk me through a bit <laughs> of your relationship with North Carolina basketball fans. I know you were a part of the uh, academic fraud allegations from 10, 15, 20 years ago or whatever. Uh, but I, I guess I just need to, and keep in mind, I'm not, I'm not backing down from you as a soldier, but I was not expecting to take this kind of heat uh, about your you know, appearances on the show. What is your relationship with North Carolina basketball fans? I tried to tell you, man, I actually mentioned it in the last segment that MJ's Jesus and I'm the Antichrist. So I think that went over your head. And when we had the initial conversation, you know, I told you I'm, I'm the perfect guy for what you do. And they know that. So to give me a voice and to allow me to do the things that they don't want to be done, the truth that needs to be told that they don't want to hear, there's going to be a lot, you know, and um. They praised me to be the next the next savior and I went the left. I went out no, I went right. I went the righteous path and now it's just, you know, it's me against them, I guess. And it, I don't want it to be like that, but it is what it is. And they gonna hate anything I say against any of the in, in, in the UNC players or formers or anything like that because they refuse to to get over this this little thing that we got going on here where it's us against it's me against them. A little thing, you helped expose the academic fraud going on within the athletic department at the University of North Carolina. Why did you do it? Most people would be like, I got over, this was great. Uh, University of North Carolina helped me out and I got a degree or whatever, I got to stay eligible on the basketball team. Why did you expose them? Accountability you know, personal accountability and also wanting to help the next generation understand what steps need to be taken to get real education and get out of a fraudulent system. That's why you call, call Michael Jordan a fraud because he's fraudulent in his character, how he treated his teammates, not his, his abilities. University of North Carolina is fraudulent how they handled the academic situation with black students at that university and funneling them through courses in which we didn't really learn anything. You just gave us grades. But apparently nothing that I said affected the outcome because they got off scot-free. So we can't say that they did anything. All we can say is that I raised the flags and I was wrong. And I am forced to say, oh, I'm sorry that you guys didn't get any penalties for cheating. What would you say to the critics that say, oh man, if Rashad had had a 15 year NBA career and had made $150 million, he, he would have never done this to the University of North Carolina? That's a what if, that's a big what if. What if, if it was a fifth, we'd be drunk as, you know what I mean? And that's not the case here. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So um, for me, I have integrity and I have. Uh, a moral compass to understand that I participated in something that wasn't that wasn't right, 
And my accountability was to say, I did this, not we did this, I did this, but it was a system. So knowing that people are going to feel some type of hatred towards the truth in that, we have to live with that. We have to live with everyone's truth. So if it affects my relationship with the university, for me to be able to admit change that I have, because now every university has to, you know, bring about some type of re- a resolution for the athletes getting compensation, getting real education. There's no more cheating and fraudulent classes. Everyone had to clean their shit up. That was because of me, and I did it alone. So if one man can force University of North Carolina to spend $30 million on an academic fraud that they had nothing to do with, come on, everyone in the whole country had to clean up their shit. How do your former teammates at North Carolina, do you have a relationship with Sean May and those guys? Not at all. Everybody that always asks that question, I'm like, when I left the school, I left all the relationships behind me. Because of the things that transpired while I was there, there's no reason for me to be friends with anybody. And that showed when 16 of my teammates sat on Coach Williams' side and said that they didn't know what was going on. And it wasn't about Coach Williams. And it wasn't about the basketball program. This was about education for the future generations. And these guys sat on their side and said, oh, we don't know nothing about... So I had to separate myself completely from all those guys because I'm righteous. I'm on, the, I'm on the side of truth. And I'm not trying to expose people for what they can't stand up for, what they don't want to stick their neck on the line for. But they knew that I was that guy. Everyone knew that, hey, Rashad ever gets the opportunity to say what he need to say, he going to say it. Mm. So this all came about because last week, yeah, today's just Tuesday, so it was last week, you had some critical comments about Michael Jordan. They've gone kind of viral over Twitter, close to 100,000 views, and all these North Carolina fans pushing back against me. How dare you uh, <laughs> give Rashad McCants a platform? Oh, you've sunk to the bottom. And, and, and what I really stand on, until you start lying to me, we're not going to have a problem. Yep. And so as long as you're standing on some truth, and, and, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be in denial of the truth and I'm not going to silence people that are willing to speak the truth. I could care less whether Rashad had a 20-year NBA career or a four-year NBA career. I've already told Rashad this, and I've, I've admitted it publicly for years. Roy Williams is probably my favorite coach of all time. I, I can't think of a coach that I like and respect more uh, than Roy Williams. And, and I say that, you know, my connection with Roy goes all the way back to the University of Kansas and yep. how he treated me there and the type of program he built there. And just, I, I have a great deal of respect for Roy Williams. That doesn't stop me from having an affinity for Rashad or, or, you know, and again, I don't know all the details of what went on at the University of North Carolina. Nothing would surprise me in college athletics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think, whatever the allegation, I don't think it makes Roy Williams a bad guy. I'm, I don't think it makes Rashad a bad guy. Uh, I th- is Bubba Cunningham still the athletic director at the University of North Carolina? No, uh, no Bubba's left, but Bubba was a guy that came through Ball State and I worked with closely. Love him. Uh, college athletics and big business are very complicated Mm-hmm. messy business and it, it's all rooted in 
amateurism that the amateurism caused corruption and and so that's why I, I don't look there are no bad people there are people making difficult compromised decisions in a system that's rooted in co the corruption of amateurism and so I don't see Rashad as a bad guy I don't see Roy Williams anybody so anyway I just wanted to clear the air on that because man your comments about Michael Jordan uh, I didn't wasn't expect I got some heat for that and so I, <laughs> I got to so I, I want to talk about uh, some NBA and just some sports topics uh, Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors Steph dropped 50 last night. Uh, the Warriors, I think, are 8-1. and one. They have the best record in the NBA. Klay Thompson isn't even back yet. And they look like the best team in the NBA. Is, is this just a little hot start? Or is there substance to the fact that maybe the Warriors are back to greatness again? I think it's a little bit of both. I think you also have to attribute it to the lack of cohesiveness in the NBA when you're talking about team basketball, team defense, how to guard star players. And Steph Curry is not doing anything that we haven't seen him do before in the start of the seasons and, you know, getting hot starts. But let's take it back to before the bubble when everybody kind of had Steph's number. We figured out how to guard Steph. And the, and the NBA teams at the time, for the first time in maybe 10 years, actually started scheming on defenses to stop star players. And they started to take the ball out of Steph Curry's hands, double teaming him on the pick and rolls, forcing Draymond Green to make plays. That has stopped. Now it gives Steph Curry an opportunity to reinvent himself, to show that he's still the same guy. And now the defense is a lot worse now in the NBA. So you got the bigs dropping way back, not giving him really the respect he deserves. At this point, there's no game that Steph Curry should come off a of pick and roll and not be double teamed and get the ball out of his hands. So I can't contribute his greatness and the, the quick start to, you know, them just being head above, you know, head above everybody else at talent and anything like that. I think it's more so the coaching style in the NBA when it comes to defending star players. And you just kind of let these guys do whatever instead of creating schemes that give your team an advantage and allow, you know, the other t the other teams, you know, alternative players to make plays that they're not used to making. That That's where I... I seen the game really evolve defensively back when we made schemes. We forced Kobe to make, you know, Radmanovich a twenty-point scorer instead of letting Kobe score sixty. Is is what you're talking about a byproduct of the de-emphasis of the regular season? Maybe people don't scheme and put together defenses until the postseason and and the regular season is just have fun and gun and it's just entertainment is that what we're looking at uh i think it's that and just the the lack of scouting report you know just just the respect for the players who've been putting in this work who need to show more of their game you know like james harden shouldn't have done six years of doing what he was doing without being double teamed on a regular basis forcing him to show more of his game being very diverse in his skill set and we're not seeing that at all in the nba we're allowing high pick and roll to be the number one source of 
play calling and and the, and the defenses are not changing up the looks, making making guys do other things. And it is a byproduct of just lack of sense of urgency, you know, harping on playing hard as you can instead of trying to figure out what points you're going to get so your contract extension is either bigger or smaller. These are the focus points that's happening in the NBA and it's diluting the game. Is I think you're right. I think the players don't care about the regular season and want to load, manage, and rest as much as they can. I almost think the players have figured out that it almost doesn't matter what they do. They have these TV contracts. The quality of the game and the quality of competition does not impact their paychecks in their view. There's no upside to competing harder, taking any real risks, taking the regular season seriously. You're going to make $5 million towards the end of the bench, and you're Mm -hmm. going to make $30 million towards the top of the rotation. And for a lot of people, $5 million and $30 million feel somewhat similar. The guy making $5 million, he he ain't broke, and, you know, he's satisfied. And so I, I just think there's so much money being made, and the guys are so young, and they haven't had, in my view, tell me if I'm wrong, this will piss off a lot of athletes, I'm not sure how hard they had to work in order to make that money. Yes, yes, yes. We talk about the ambition and you talk about the desire um, and you talk about what it takes to get to that level, what we all went through as far as having to do three years of college basketball, blood, sweat, and tears to get to the NBA and then show and prove that you can fit into a system, learn the offense, be a, a viable piece in the puzzle, and always just play your best, play your hardest, and, and, and just do what the team needs to be done. And nowadays, there's such uh, pressure on the players because offensively you've been tagged as this guy or that guy. You have to perform every night without really any emphasis on team or defense. If you look at the social media now, they're only training offensive guys in isolation situations. And that's why you see all the guys who aren't isolation players making isolation plays, forcing the game to look so college-like. And we have no organization. The point guards are not taking control of the team to make sure guys are in the right spot. We're running and executing the offense. It just looks bad. And it doesn't really look bad on the player side. It looks bad on the coaching and the player development. These guys are should be held accountable for the way the game looks because these guys don't care. Like you said, you should care about being beat to the middle and Zach Levine dunks on your whole team. That should be you being upset that you missed your own assignment. And that's not happening. You don't see guys being upset that guys are scoring 50 on them. There's no way. I'm going to, and I'm going to go back to your original comments about your behavior in North Carolina and relationship. You talked about accountability. And accountability is being removed from sports in terms of all the broadcasters, with the possible exception of Charles Barkley, are somewhat 
afraid of the athletes and they don't want to lose access to the athletes. And so I remember a couple of weeks ago when Doris Burke basically defended Rayshon Rondo, who pointed his finger in a fan's face, and the fan slapped it out, and Doris Burke, oh my God, how dare that fan slap? And it's like, well, hold on, Doris. That's a man sitting courtside. That's a man standing in a basketball uniform. These are two men. Just because Rondo's in the NBA don't make him better than the guy sitting courtside. And so if you put a finger in a man's face, he's going to... He's going to slap it out of your face. But I say that to say there's virtually no accountability for athletes. There's no criticism, real criticism, of their behavior on the court, execution on the court, level of effort on the court. It's like it's a club where the networks are in bed with the leagues and everybody's just trying to promote, 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 promote. And so you can't even have an honest discussion about how, hey man, there's not much real competition going on here until we get to the playoffs. We, we can't even talk about that. And so in that environment, if I'm a young person, and I'm saying that if I'm between the ages of 19 and 30, I consider that a young person, and there's no accountability, and I'm making millions of dollars, why would, I, why would I go out and give my all if I'm not going to be called out for it at any time? Right. I agree. I got I to gotta attribute this conversation right here to Steph Curry's situation. People don't want to admit that Steph Curry, if he doesn't play for the Warriors, we don't know what kind of player we would see because that's the only team that he has the freedom to do what he does. There's no other team in NBA in the last 15 years that allowed one player to just come down and shoot from where he shoots to be able to have the offense completely centered around him running off screens and getting open. The Golden State Warriors made a real big investment on centering everything around him and he changed the game. Now, some people said that he made it worse and that he destroyed the game. And that could be somewhat true, seeing that everyone now wants to shoot 80 footers and come across half court and think that they can, you know, dribble, 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 just shoot it. And that attributes to the coach giving him the confidence to do whatever he wants. And a lot of players know that that's not realistic. Because if Gilbert Arenas had the ability to do, which he had a little bit of an ultra green light in Washington, but if he had the confidence to literally come down and do what Steph is doing, man, we would see Gilbert Arenas would be Hall of Famer. And before him, a great shooter that never made it was Keith Bishop Vini, played at Marshall. He was an incredible shooter. But that's when the game was being being taught to play team. And he was one of those guys like Steph. Come across half court. It was a bad shot if you miss it. We're all looking at you crazy. But there's no accountability for Steph to take those shots and miss those shots, and those shots affect us winning or losing. That's the difference. I, I, I want to make one other point about this. And, and, again, we didn't prep for this, or I didn't tell you I was going to ask this beforehand. But just for me as a sports writer and as a media personality, what during the my young career from age 25 through L even today I don't want to be more 
than a sports journalist or a sports writer or I, I, I that's all I want to be. Yeah. And and now do I also in my I want to be a Christian and I want to represent. But again, my primary focus is on how can I be the best sports media personality in the country? That's what I wake up every day trying to accomplish. And so I look at LeBron James and to some degree, Serena Williams, and we've promoted this idea more than an athlete. You need to be more than your profession. And to me, that like diminishes your profession. And mm-hmm. I, look at, I look at the modern athletes, and, I, and again, maybe Ronnie Lott and these guys had a crazy and they were a bunch of idiots and playing that game and winning the championship let me cut off part of my finger anything to to win Michael Jordan playing with a flu and all that other stuff but but I look at the athletes today they want to be rappers Mm -hmm. they want to be movie moguls they want to be social media influencers they want to do criminal justice reform they they want to be leaders in their communities and, and the only thing I've, I've ever said, Rashad, is like, everybody's got a role to play. And I'm mm-hmm. like, athletes are trying to play all the roles. And yeah. I'm like, and particularly as it relates to like social justice or whatever, I'm like, nah, man, y'all out over your skis. Try, criminal justice is one of the hardest things in the world, and you think you can do it in your spare time as a football or basketball player. Quit trying to be more than an athlete. Take your money and wealth and support people who actually have expertise in these areas. And so if you're into criminal justice reform, go out and find someone who focuses on that. Finance them. But you trying to be the out front. Anyway, the whole more than an athlete thing, I think, has diminished a lot of athletes and their performance because I just don't think they care as much about being an athlete as people used to. Well, let's talk about the entire uh, the entitlement of you just expecting it's supposed to be there one, but then the understanding that a hundred percent of the priority has to be spent on your craft. And I was a victim of this. I played victim of, listen, I want to be a, a rapper, an actor. I want to be a public speaker, author. But I just played the game because I was good at it. So the game wasn't necessarily me. I could make a decision to say, when I walk away from this game, I can go do all the things that weren't a distraction to me in my field. So when you're in the field, you're under contract. It's just like with any relationship, you can't give it 50-50. You have to give it 100%. You have to be engulfed passionately into this craft so that it it resembles what Kobe Bryant exuded when it comes to the the work, the time he put into, the, the energy he put into, that showed the result of what it looks like. So if you're not engulfed in it 100%, you're trying to be something that you're not here for. You're here to be an athlete, a sports expert you're here to be an nba player nfl player it's got to be a hundred percent it can't be anything else i learned that personally and they look at you differently when you're not coming in a hundred percent you can see it in your play 
And that's the biggest drawback I see right now in our culture is there's 10 percent here, 20 percent here, 40 percent here. And guys don't know where to prioritize their time. And it's looking like, you know, they spend more time on Instagram than they do in the lab. And they think that you could just go into the lab, put a couple shots up and tighten up just for, you know, the regular season doesn't matter. Just wait till the end of the season. We can get to the playoffs and then I'll turn it up. But now you're not leaving a real legacy. You got to leave a legacy through your hard work and dedication. And see, this is where I defend Michael Jordan. When he was playing basketball, it seemed like other than maybe drinking and, and chasing a little tail, all he wanted to do was play basketball and be the best. And he wasn't trying to be more than an athlete. And that's why his legacy is so large. And I, Kobe, same deal. And then they trained Kobe, as soon as he was done playing, transitioned into other things. And I got hats off to him. I, I, I think LeBron has sold these guys a bill of goods. Everybody wants to be. Uh, again, Jay-Z mixed with a little Muhammad Ali, uh, mixed with uh, who's, a, who's a runway model, because uh, that's the other thing. I, I love these guys. They all want to be, uh, I, don't, I don't know, whoever a runway model is, they all want to be Instagram models. Yeah. And, and, and I, I'm just, this is crazy. I mean, when I look at Russell Westbrook and the way he dresses up before a basketball game so he can sashay down the, the, to the locker room or whatever and be filmed and all that, and I'm just like, what's on this man's <laughs> mind? What, 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 what was he thinking? Has he prepared and got ready for work and let some LGBT fashionista person dress him up to walk down, the, what are you thinking about? And and and, I, I, and he wonders why he can't win. I, I just, I, more than an athlete, I, I guess I'm an Instagram model. I'm Muhammad Ali. I'm a philanthropist. I'm a charity person or whatever. Good luck with it, gentlemen. Uh, I suggest you get some focus, make as much money as you can while you're playing the game. And then use that money to to be more than an athlete once you're done being an athlete. Uh, Rashad, that's all I got for you today. Uh, I think we covered enough ground there. Uh, good job. Thank uh, you. I guess I'll be back defending uh, Rashad over social media today. People will be upset with me again. All right, uh, stay tuned. Uh, the Korean Cosell. All right, welcome back. Time for the Korean Cosell uh, to pick up off of uh, Rashad McCants' comments. We were talking a lot of sports with Rashad McCants. We'll continue the sports conversation with uh, Steve Kim, the Korean Cosell. Uh, Steve, you were awfully impressed with Justin Fields last night, even though the Bears lost. Why were you so impressed? Well, when they play his offense, which is shotgun spread, 
That's what he's been doing since high school when he was the number one quarterback in 2018. That's what he thrived under when he eventually went to Ohio State under Ryan Day. I didn't understand this, Jam. It's the first extended look I've really had at the Bears over a full game. And the first couple of drives are coming in underneath center. And I'm thinking, what is this, 1985 with Jim McMahon and Walter Payton? Most of the league now is spread to a certain degree. And in my view, what they're doing with him is like trying to be an Atari 2600 in a PlayStation world. you got to modernize that offense. And you saw what happened, Jay, in the second half when they needed to throw the ball and go a little bit more quick up-tempo. They needed heavy chunk plays. They decided to let the kid do what he does best, play ball, sling it a little bit. And, Jason, what really impressed me was he was making some tight window throws down the middle of the field, which are really difficult for young quarterbacks, and he was very accurate down the field. And that one touchdown to Darnell Mooney at the end where he's running towards his left and he flings the ball accurately right on him, that's professional quarterbacking. Look, there's going to be bumps in the road, but he let him grow. And the Bears have a decision to make. Matt Nagy is not a popular coach right now in Chicago, and I could see why. But the more I think about it, if you really want to maximize the skills of, of Fields, you got to get him a Cliff Kingsbury if he's your Kyler Murray. And so this is just a wild thought, and this is what I'm just suggesting, and I'm not saying it's going to happen. I ask Ryan Day if he has any interest in coaching the Chicago Bears, and I also look at Lincoln Riley, who's another offensive spread guru who's very innovative. Because I think that's the type of investment you have to make in a talent like Justin Fields. Why couldn't you let Matt Nagy adjust to Justin Fields? One of the worst things that can happen to a quarterback is too many different offensive coordinators, too many different offensive minds. Now you got to learn a whole new system. Why not give Matt Nagy credit for, like, okay, maybe the Bears are figuring out how to handle Justin Fields? You know what? He's got the rest of the year to do so. We're still about halfway through the season. But Matt Nagy, to me, this is probably going to make you cringe as a Kansas City Chiefs guy. To me, he's like a, a version of the modern-day Paul Hackett. Remember Paul Hackett was his offensive genius, and uh, he was a quarterback coach for Bill Walsh and Joe Montana. Pretty easy gig there, right? And it turns out every other place he went to, hired as this offensive genius, it fell flatter than a four-day-old can of Coke that was open. It really is about the talent. And, and Matt Nagy, if you look at his resume, and I studied it a little bit, he got a lot of bones from being underneath Andy Reid. Jay, can we be honest? The Andy Reid offense in Kansas City is not about the coordinator. Maybe a lot about Patrick Mahomes, but really that's Andy Reid's offense. That's his innovation. That's his system. And if you look at the Bears the last several years, his first year under Nagy, they were very good. Last couple of years, they've been mired in a lot of mediocrity. They've wasted a really good defense. In my view, last night, Fields put a stamp on that job for the next 10 years so I'll be fair about it. Matt Nagy, for the next eight, nine weeks, he has an opportunity to salvage his coaching life in Chicago. Steve, I do want to tell you, this is a family show, and whatever bone Andy Reid gave to Matt Nagy is none of our business. We don't talk about that stuff here on this show. Just want to remind you of that. You got, uh, the Patriots. You think the Patriots are back I kind of think I tend to agree with you. I, 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 they may mess around and win the AFC East. What, are they just a game back of the Buffalo Bills? 
five and four, three games in a row that they have been very, very good. And look, are, are they beating up on a softer schedule? Yes, but they're also winning those games handily. And you look at their four losses, three of them have come by a combined total of eight points. They played right with the Buccaneers. They took the Dallas Cowboys, were very good into overtime. And this is your classic Belichick coach team. They're smart. They're disciplined. They play unbelievable situational defense and football overall. His clock management is the best I've ever seen. And that young man right there, Matt the Knife Jones, out of all the rookie quarterbacks, I don't know if he has the highest ceiling, but right now he's exhibiting the highest floor. The ball gets out on time. Generally, he's very accurate. It looks the way it should. Now, Matthew Judon on the other side of the ball, it should be a defensive MVP candidate. He's an absolute difference maker in the front seven. J.C. Jackson has become a, an elite cornerback, playmaking guy, had a touchdown on Sunday. And Bill Belichick is showing it wasn't just about the quarterback. And there's this revisionist history about Brady and all these Super Bowls he won in New England. Jay, you covered the NFL probably closer than I did. Wouldn't you say the first three Lombardis that Brady won, wasn't he more or less a game manager and the Patriots were really about the defense as their foundation? I think the Patriots were about their defense as their foundation. I don't think Brady was a game manager. I think that that's like calling him Trent Dilfer with the Baltimore <laughs> Ravens. I don't buy that. But I do think it was about that. They, they relied on a great defense. And then the second half of Brady's tenure in New England, they relied on the offense. Yep. <clears throat> There's truth in that. Uh, but, but to me, the argument that the Patriots could win the AFC East is also an argument that you don't think the Buffalo Bills are totally for real and that, you know, that loss to Jacksonville exposed something or makes you uh, question the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, that game, uh, to steal a line from Eminem, will the real Josh Allen, please stand up, please stand up. Uh, that's a game you got to win. One of the ways that you become a good football team and how you consistently become a playoff team, there's probably about eight to ten games a year that you have to win, that you're so much better than that other squad, and you got to chalk that up as a victory. Now, this past Sunday was an upset Sunday. A lot of funny things happened with a lot of favorites just getting absolutely blown out. Maybe that's an anomaly, but you look at that Bills roster, they look like they should be better than five and three. Now, I'm a fan of Josh Allen. He's one of those four or five young quarterbacks that I'd say, Steve, if that's your quarterback for the next decade, would you take him? I'd say absolutely. Was not very good with ball security overall or his accuracy on Sunday. They still have the best roster in that division. But ask yourself this, Jay. Who's the best coach in that particular division, the AFC East? Belichick or anybody else? Robert Salah, I think, with the Jets. Uh, <laughs> Poor guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, here was the conversation I really wanted to have. Uh, Baker Mayfield, they let go of OBJ. OBJ takes the dump on Baker Mayfield, or OBJ's dad does. And then the Cleveland Browns explode for 40-some-odd points. Baker Mayfield has a great game. Uh, did we just see addition by subtraction? I believe we have. Now, let, let's go back to what happened. I wanted to discuss this last week. Look, Odell Beckham Sr., he's a football guy, played at LSU. So he understood the dynamic that was going to be imploded between the quarterback and the receiver when he put out that Instagram video. It wasn't his, but he reposted it. I'm not going to lie to you, though. As I saw the video, it was pretty damning about Baker Mayfield. 
But it, it goes back to that old riff from Chris Rock when he was still funny about the O.J. Simpson, Nicole uh, alleged murder, when he said, look, fellas, I, I, I don't condone what he did, but I understand. And as I'm watching that video, I'm kind of thinking, geez, Odell is open and your guest, fine football pro receiver in his own right, who knows a lot more about it than I do, T.J. Hujmanzada, kind of said, yes, he's open. But with that said, they had to realize what was going to happen, and I believe that they coordinated it to get him out of Cleveland. This is where I blame Odell, though, for the lack of chemistry that those two have had. Let's go back about two, three years ago. I believe it was in 2019 when Odell was acquired by the New York Giants under a different management, John Dorsey. His first minicamp in the offseason, he doesn't show up. And I know a lot of people are going to say, well, those are voluntary. I don't believe they're voluntary at all. I, I think those are important team-building exercises, and I do know that all-time greats like Michael Irvin and Jerry Rice, they felt it was their duty and their obligation to continue to build that chemistry with their franchise quarterbacks. Odell and Baker never got on the same page. That's just the reality. Now, moving forward, is it addition by subtraction? In one word, yes, because if you really look at the crux of the matter, we shouldn't even be talking about Baker now. The guy we should be talking about is Nick Chubb, Rock, who treats him right. When he runs well, he is the heartbeat of that whole offense, and there's a direct correlation. There's three things in life, death taxes and a running game helping out a quarterback. So as long as Nick Chubb is healthy, and I guess he got COVID, and now his status for this weekend is uh, very much up in the air, we don't know what's going to happen. But keep that in mind. This is not really about Baker. He's the sexy name. He's the guy with all the commercials. But as long as Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt eventually comes back, the Browns are going to be okay. But again, they should be a run-first team. I want to go back to OBJ. This is another team that's jettisoning him. Uh, he'll be on his third team. He hasn't been in a Pro Bowl since 2016. Is mm. OBJ in jeopardy of blowing a Hall of Fame football career? You know what he is? He's Holly Berry. Holly Berry's beautiful. She's still beautiful. She's still very alluring. But there's a reason why there's a long laundry list of men who after a while say, oh, God, okay, see it. From David Justice on, okay? So he's basically Holly Berry. Now, he could still play. One thing I noticed about that video that was put up by his father last week, whether it's man coverage, off coverage, cover two, cover three, whether it's a short, intermediate, or deep route, he can still create separation. I think he's still got some life in those legs. But yes, Jay, as of right now, does he have enough momentum that I say he's trekking towards a Hall of Fame arc? Is he headed to Canton in a gold jacket? No. The last three years... I don't even think he's been the best receiver on his own team. That distinction goes to Jarvis Landry. He was just a blue-collar, solid pro. And so I, I wonder, though, Jay, do you even think Odell Beckham, as he makes this decision, I believe he has cleared waivers, does he just go for the great location, the most money, or does he even care at all about his legacy? Because, again, I still think he's in his physical prime from a physical standpoint. I don't know mentally where he goes because part of this now is also winning. He has to win a little bit and put a, a Super Bowl ring on his finger or at least have some meaningful moments in the playoffs along with procuring stats for him to really get into that Canton discussion. I, and I just wonder again, Jay, does he even care about that stuff? 
Yeah, I think he cares, and I think he's going to try to pick a team that he thinks can win now. But hmm. I don't touch him if I'm the Green Bay Packers. I don't touch him if I'm the Kansas City Chiefs. I don't, I don't touch him if I'm the New England Patriots. I, I, I guess the Saints, but would he be interested in playing with the Saints with no Jameis Winston and having to rely on Taysom Hill? I, I, I'm just trying. Who, who takes uh, OBJ, Seattle, I guess, and no, Russell see, Wilson? Well, here's the problem, Jay. Every one of those teams comes with an issue where you say, this may not work out for Odell. There was two teams that I really thought may have fit. Oh, excuse me, the Las Vegas Raiders. They need a real guy that could take the top off the defense now that Ruggs, his career's ended. Um, they have a frontline quarterback in Derek Carr. They have a tight end that can open up the middle of the field in Waller. Raiders have never been afraid to take renegades and castoffs and rejuvenate late in their career. But again, I don't know their financial situation. I was thinking about Seattle like you, Jay, but do you think his ego can handle this? You have a franchise quarterback, which is a plus, but they also have two very productive explosive receivers in Little Lockett, the kid out of Kansas State, who's been a very good pro, that young man. And then you have DK Metcalf, baby T.O. So realistically, if he steps right into Seattle, Pete Carroll takes that risk. How do we know that that Odell is nothing more than the number three receiver. Is he satisfied with that role? Let me say this about the Las Vegas Raiders. It, this is another element that I heard someone mention uh, about the Raiders, and I, I kind of find it fascinating. I think it was Andrew Brandt or somebody that mentioned it. When you look at Ruggs, and then d- didn't they just have a DB getting some kind of trouble? Yes, uh, other, that they had to other- let go. Yes, their other first-round draft choice, which makes it maybe the worst first round ever for a team with multiple choices, Daquan Arnett. Right. Yeah. And so Andrew Brandt brought up the fact, like, man, is living mm. and having a franchise in Las Vegas a problem? For You're talking about drunk driving. You're just talking about there's so much temptation in Las Vegas as and, and the whole culture is so corrupt and sinful is is that do you really bring obj to las vegas we've already seen him yeah anyway look i'm with you on that but 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 if you want to look at the other way he's also been in new york which is the biggest media market in all of la if excuse me all of the u.s how'd that work out it didn't. How'd that work and out in New York? Yeah. Exactly. So it would. I don't think he'd be scared off by the bright lights, but it is the temptations. But OBJ, to me, if you're a serious franchise, I'm not so sure I'd take the risk on him. As much as I like him from a physical standpoint, I still think he can play football. I, I don't know if there's a perfect destination. And if I'm Bill Belichick, I'm not doing that. I'm sorry. That, that is not Randy Moss. That looks more like Ocho Cinco. Mac Jones is the type of quarterback. His favorite receiver – is the first read that's open. I don't put that pressure on a young rookie quarterback to have a guy saying, hey, I need 12 touches a game. That's the last thing they need. Steve, I'm going to let you go. Great job. Uh, go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Have you hit that subscribe button? Have you hit the notifications? Have you given me a like? We need 4,000 likes for today's show. Have you left me a comment? Are you in the chat? I'm going to be there. I'm in there with you right now. Leave me a comment. Hit the chats. 
I'll respond. Uh, let's get those likes up. Uh, Uncle Jimmy and his approval rating for Steph Curry and a review of today's show. Next. All right, it's time for our approval rating. And uh, Uncle Jimmy, or our drill sergeant, who calls himself a thrill sergeant, his review of the show. All right, today's show, awesome, outstanding, or outstanding and awesome? Pretty damn good. Pretty damn good. Pretty damn good. <laughs> but I, I got to keep it real with you, man. I, I, I got a question about, I got a question about your boy, Rashad. Rashad McCants. Yeah. Excuse me. Rashad McCants. Yeah. What's the I, issue? I need to tell you, we, we really, we, we early in this game, and Rashad might be, you got to make sure this boy ain't going rogue on us, man. <laughs> what are you seeing? I know you've put a lot of soldiers through basic training. What are you seeing that I'm not? Uh, let me put it like this. Um, you, you're a big uh, Tony Soprano fan. Yes. You're a big Tony Montana fan. Al Pacino, my favorite actor. Okay. I'm a big Michael Jordan fan. Gotcha. Oh, you know what? He's critical of Michael Jordan. Okay, Michael Jordan is NBA royalty. There's some things you don't put your mouth on the Godfather. Okay, <laughs> honestly, and that's why Scottie Pippen gonna find this out real soon too. Mm. Mm. Or, or shall we say, Snotty Pippen. Mm. All right. So you know, we may have to put a little video together and send this to Rashad and say you've been put on notice by the drill sergeant. Well, I mean, just some things we just need to stay in his, stay in his lane. That's all. Y'all not handle this in private? Couldn't you make a private call to Rashad and, and, and tell him he's a little out of line here? Did you have to air him out here on the show? Look here, man, I'm the thrill sergeant. Now, damn it, if it don't thrill you, then don't let it kill you, okay? <laughs> Come on now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not here to babysit people. We gonna keep it real out here. We fearless. Oh, all right. Any, I mean, how about Delano, Steve Kim? Fantastic job today. I love Delano. I, I love Delano. Delano, he, 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 he's, our, he, he's our minister of intelligence. Okay, you know, um, with, I think that with that, Delano's the one that keeps you on the rails. You know, he, he keeps you. Keeps on, me? Yeah. Of, on the, he keeps you. Oh. I mean, true, truly, he keeps you on the rails. He, he's good. He keeps you going. And we need to keep him around. I will do, well, perhaps he getting some more stripes. Are you re recommending him for a promotion? Right now, that, that he, he's doing his job. I love him. I, I love him. Um, Steve Kim, uh, I love him. He, he, he's a good dude, but um, he need to watch his mouth when he, you know, he's sitting up here trying to. Oh, I think that the Patriots are gonna. Uh, Steve Kim, who asked you what the hell you think about the Patriots? I did. Okay, well, guess what? If it means that it's got to be happening, uh, finishing over the Chiefs, nobody cares. Chiefs got problems, man. Uh, look. You know how bad we looked against the Packers? If Aaron Rodgers had played in that game, we'd have got dusted by 30. Okay, let me ask bo both of you and Steve Kim a question, because y'all said this. Y'all said that the Chiefs basically said they'd be crazy as hell for signing Odell, yeah, Odell Beckham Jr. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you do, real, you do realize that a couple of weeks ago, we just signed Josh Puff Puff Pass Gordon, right? <laughs> yes. We just signed Josh. I'll take a one-hitter quitter if you want me to, Gordon. <laughs> Come on, man. 
That is true. Uh, we do like problem children in Kansas City. Uh, Van Morris wasn't around no more. <laughs> or Bong Morris. <laughs> we just got Tyreek Hill acting properly. So, yeah, I don't see Well, now we've done that. Josh Gordon and Odell Beckham. That would be crazy. All right, uh, Steph Curry, we talked about him earlier in the show. He went for 50 last night. Uh, the Warriors, I believe, are 9-1. I think earlier in the show I said 8-1. They're 9-1 and the best team in basketball. Uh, Steph Curry's all the way back. The war- and this is, they're doing this without Klay Thompson. Uh, let's get to our approval rating for uh, Steph Curry. Definitely. In job performance, can't give him a perfect score. It's the regular season. Uh, you know, I've always said Steph plays harder than everybody else in the regular season, and that's why it looks so good in the regular season, and there's a dip in the playoffs when everybody else steps up. I give him a 23 in job performance, bottom line. Um, first of all, let me say that I think that Steph Curry needs to thank Kwame Brown for this season that he's had. Kwame Brown is responsible. Yeah. For, yeah, how? Because Steph Curry's taking, some, taking a page from Kwame Brown's book. It, Steph Curry's playing so well because he's getting his mama's home cooking. <laughs> Are you talking about his wife, Aisha, or are you talking about Simon? I'm talking about, uh, I, I give him a 25. Whose home cooking is he getting? I'm, I like his mama. Oh. <laughs> I like his mama. He eating his mama's home cooking. The, the, the boys, he, he that, that's why. Is, you think she's cooking more often because she's divorced from he, Dale? I thought she ran off with some other man. Look, I'm telling you, mama's cooking got that boy. Oh, all right. Uh, character... Uh, I like Steph, but, you know, he plays woke sometimes, so I gave him a 17 in character. He's a character. Uh, he, he's playing his role. He don't want no trouble. Um, he, 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 all the little dancers. He's hey, man, he's Trey, he's Trey from Boys in the Hood. Huh? He's Trey from Boys in the Hood. <laughs> Remember that part in Boys in the Hood where they was riding, getting ready to go to, do the drive-by, and all of a sudden Trey said, yo, don't let me out. Let me out, man. He's that dude. Like you wouldn't have done that. Oh, no, I would have rolled. <laughs> I would have rolled. I would have never been in the car. Never. Don't <laughs> <laughs> ride in back seats. <laughs> never. <laughs> man, let me out. <laughs> Stop at this McDonald's. I'll be right back. I got to pee. <laughs> Never you ain't shit. <laughs> they never see me again. You know what I say? Nope, sure ain't. <laughs> uh, authenticity. I don't, I don't, I like Steph, but I don't know what to believe. So I give him a 16 in authenticity. I like his mama. <laughs> I gave him a 25. <laughs> I'm just saying, I really do. I mean, I like him if he got nappy hair, braided hair. <laughs> I like his mama. All right, it factor, uh, I'm going to go at 22. The kids love Steph Curry. Uh, he's t- a lot of, probably the most exciting player in the league. Uh, so I'll give him a 22, it factor. I told you before, Steph Curry, Colin Kaepernick, Juan Williams, they represent the new Negro. And unlike you, I'm being accepting of it. I give him a 10. <laughs> The ha- he's first of all, Steph's not African American. I think his mama might be half black, half white, but is that deal black? If I may quote a page from your book, yeah. he damn sure ain't no thoroughbred. 
All right, so anyway, we both have him at a smoke show. I got him at a 78. You have him at an 85. Uh, you know what that means, the show's over. It's time for tomorrow, and it's time to start thinking about tomorrow. Hit that like button, man. Please do, please hit, and, and could you leave a comment? I'm looking at myself right now on camera. I look really good, don't you agree? If you agree, say, man, Whitlock looks good. All right, thank you, we'll see you tomorrow. Dismissed! Nothing in life like freedom. Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder. Making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my system, no relation. We all just want to have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving all the seed when we all want to be free. We want freedom.